Well, good morning again. Please leave your Bibles open at uh, the passage from John. I will be looking at that. Uh, can I ask a question? Has anybody ever been to Yamba on the north coast? Put your hand up. One, two. All right, a few of you. Well, I've got a couple of stories to tell before I look at this passage. Hopefully these stories will have everything to do with this passage. But before I got into mission work, um, I, I had many and varied jobs. And one of those was as a professional fisherman. I worked on prawn trawlers in the ocean, worked at nights. And uh, I'd like to tell you two of, the, two of these stories that, that happened. Uh, the first one uh, was in 1986. Uh, Some of you weren't born then, but... <laughs> my, brother and, my brother and I were, uh, were working off Yamba, uh, out near the Continental Shelf. So it was about uh, 20 nautical miles east of Yamba. And it was a particularly calm night this night uh, when we were, we were prawning. And um, there was no swell, there was no wind. The, the sea was actually glassy, which is extremely unusual. And as we worked the same area all night, we could see about a, a, well, two kilometres east of us, um, a, we knew it was a yacht that didn't move. And so when we lifted up our last... Uh, catch for the morning, just on sunrise, sure enough, we saw the yacht. Now, you have to do the right thing as a, as a seafaring person, and so we went to make sure he was all right, because he never moved all night. And uh, we pulled up, now what I'm about to tell you is, is the honest gospel truth. We pulled up beside this uh, yacht, it was only a small yacht, and uh, we yelled out, and this skeleton covered with skin, with his huge hair and beard, came up out of the forecastle of the yacht and we said, are you okay? And it was a really old man and he must have weighed only 40 kilos. He was just skin and bone. And and he said, yeah, well, I'm right. And I said, you got, we got, you got water? Yeah, it rained the other night. I got my bucket full. You got something to eat? Yeah, caught a fish the other day. That's fed me. And then he says something remarkable. The, the sun's about to come up and he points towards the land. He points west and he said, that land over there. Now from that far out you can't see anything. You can only see eight miles from standing on the beach. But there's a, a south of the Amber, uh, there's a, a hill called Clarence Peak. And that was the only bit of land you could see. And this old man, he said, that bit of land over there, he said, is that the north or the south? And we said, no, mate, that's the west, you know, it's the east that way, west that way. And he said, no, you ready for it? He said, no, is that the North Island or the South Island? He honestly thought he was bobbing around off the east coast of New Zealand. Now, this guy was completely lost. I've never known anybody to be that lost. He was completely lost. We actually thought there's something a bit wrong, a bit screwy with this guy. So we towed him in. And he never had a friend in the world. He never had any relatives. He was just bobbing around in the ocean, unaware of where he was. He, we booked him into hospital. Um, we got the customs down. And two days later, he booked himself out, took on his yacht, never to be seen again. We never heard from him again. He'll be dead now, of course, but he probably, how he died and where he ended up. It's just unbelievable. But it occurred to me a few years later, this was my pre-Christian days, but how could somebody get that far away from where they're supposed to be? And he was 4,000 kilometres away from where he was supposed to be. I've never known anybody to be that far away from anything. The second story is, um, again, a fishing story, and this happened in 1984. Um, I was the skipper on, a, on, on my dad's trawler at that stage, and we were working about 
it was about 26 nautical miles from the bar at Yambaraluka. And this East Coast low formed up very quickly and took us quite unawares. And um, uh, it was horrific. I, I've, I've been scared a few times on the trawlers, and this was one of those times when I was really scared that something horrible and dramatic was going to happen. We picked up the gear, um, which was quite a, an event in itself, and started heading to home, which all the fleet did also. Now, we'd worked a lot of consecutive nights, and I was extremely tired. My deckhand went downstairs to have a sleep. And I guess the worst thing that you can do when you're under control of any sort of vessel or car is go to sleep at the wheel. And that's what I did. I'd set the automatic pilot on the radar, and it was about a two-and-a-half-hour steam to get back to Iruka. And I went to sleep, something that I only ever did once, and it was quite a, a number of years I've been a fisherman that this actually happened. And then I heard these, these words, on the, and this is where you people have been to Yamba, where you, this is where you come in. And I heard these words on the CB radio. Now, the CB radio had been quiet all night long, and I heard these words, Cole K, Cole K, are you there, Frank? There was one trawler calling another. And I opened my eyes, and this blinding flash of light. Now, this is my pre-Christian days. And I thought, what was that as I woke up and I'm just blinded? And I mean really blinded. And then I heard the, the, the call sign again, one trawler calling another. Cole K, Cole K, you're there, Frank. And then I opened my eyes, and bang, I was just blinded again. And then I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on, and then bang, this light hits me again. What do you think the light was? Lighthouse. It was the lighthouse. Where do you think the lighthouse was? Straight up. It was straight up. It was straight above me. I was about 50 metres from running up the rock wall where the Yamba Lighthouse is, for those people who have been there. I was about 50 metres from there. I, I, I realised where I was, turned the automatic pilot off, spun the wheel, and as the arm went around, the nail at the end of the arm, which we weld there when the arms fold up, and you've got a nail on top, stops pelicans sitting there doing their business down the arm, right? That nail got knocked off on that rock as it went around. To this day, my father doesn't know this. <laughs> I, only tell, I only tell this story in prisons and in churches because my dad's an atheist and will never go to either. And so he could never figure out why the nail on that arm wasn't there and the one on this arm. But it occurred to me, of course, that why, did that, why didn't that radio call come an hour ago or half an hour ago or ten minutes before? Why did it happen then? But now, looking back, of course, as we all can, and you all have at some stage in your life that God's intervened in your life. And this was one of those. And I look back now, I should have died. That we should have gone straight up that uh, rock wall. The boat would have disintegrated. It was a huge sea. My deckhand wouldn't have, would have, would have drowned. And I shouldn't be here. But God intervened. And I met God that, I didn't meet God that day. But looking back, I see that God intervened in my life. As we come to the Word of God, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together. Give us a, a, an open mind this morning, a clear heart, Lord. Please remove the distractions that will keep us from understanding your word this morning and uh, so that we may take what we hear away and apply in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, with this Bible passage that was read from the, the book of the book of John. I'll just read a few verses here from verse 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, just a bit of history here. Uh, there's a section in, um, in, well, in Israel, as we know it, where Samaritan people used to live. Now, these were despised people. These were people that had a, a Jewish ancestry, and were um, they'd given that away. They'd intermarried with non-believing people, Gentiles, and so they'd given up their right to be called sons of God. And so they were despised by the Jewish people. Uh, Jewish people who had to walk from point A to point B, Samaria was in the middle, they used to walk around it. They would not associate with these people. They were despised and hated by the Jewish people because they'd given up their birthright, they'd given up their right to be called sons of God. In the Jewish people's eyes, they'd spat in the face of God. They worshipped other idols and they were no longer uh, considered, they were considered by the Jewish people to be unclean. Alright, so people, uh, the Jewish people used to walk around, used to add a couple of days to their travel depending on where they were going. But here Jesus, of course, he's on a mission and he goes to this place. Now it constantly fascinates me the detail that the Bible puts in, just in a few words. And we have a few words in, in, uh, in this section today which really fascinates me. The first one is, it tells us that it's the sixth hour. Now in the ancient clock, that was noon, 12 noon, midday. Why would the Bible put that in? Why would they give us that information? It seems rather meaningless to think of it now that they tell us it's midday. But it's for a very good reason as we find out. And here we have in verse 7 a Samaritan woman coming to draw water from this well where Jesus is. Now she's coming there at midday. Now this is extremely unusual. Most of the women, of course, would be up early in the morning. It'd be nice and cool in the morning. They'd walk up to the well with their water jars, buckets, whatever. They'd fill them up, they'd have a talk, it'd be a social gathering, and then they'd walk back with their water for their drinking, their cooking, their cleaning. But here this woman, she walks up here at midday. And you ask yourself why, and she's by herself. And But we find out later why this woman has to walk up in the heat of the day. It's stinking hot, it's dusty. She's got to lug her water jar up, she's got to carry it back in the heat of the day. It's tired. Why does she go up there by herself? We find out later, of course. And so she goes up and then she has uh, this conversation with Jesus. Again, this is extremely unreal. Number one, that a Jewish man would actually talk to another woman. But number two, that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan or a Jewish man would talk to a Samaritan. That's even more unbelievable in their culture. But they have this conversation. And the conversation goes, uh, Jesus is talking about eternity, he's talking about heaven. And he's, he's, he's using this symbolically by talking about living water. They're at a well. He's using this. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get the whole conversation. She's, she's thinking it's some sort of magic water. You have a drink of it once and you'll never get thirsty again. She'll never have to go to the road. She's looking at it from a human point of view. So they just, she just does not get the conversation. And then you can sense in verse 16... You can sense the, I guess, exasperation in Jesus' voice. When he says to the woman, you can nearly sense the sigh, you know. Ah, go and call your husband. You know, as if to say, go and get someone else up here I can talk sense to. But this is all for a point, of course. Jesus says, go and call your husband and come back. And the woman says in verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus says to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands 
and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now friends, there's probably a lot of names that we can give in modern terminology for this woman. She's had five husbands, she's now living in a de facto relationship. You could think, well, what was she looking for? What's she been searching for all her life? You could think she might be searching for money, might be a gravy train, or that, you know, it's always, grass is always greener on the next hill. I think she's searching for love. I think this woman had that one thing missing from life and she thought she could find it in the arms of men. Given up her Jewish ancestry where true love lied, in the arms of God. So this woman here all her life had been searching for something that she'd given up previously. She'd been caught out. Ever been caught out? Ever said something and you got caught out? Ever did something and it caught up with you? I think every head should nod. And this person here, this lady here, was just exposed as a wretched, sinful woman. And can I say to you right now, the most wretched person in this building this morning is me. I should know better. But I guess if we all have that moment where we think, is there something in my life right now that I'm ashamed of, or something in my life right now that's keeping from a relationship with God, perhaps we should bow our heads and commit that to God now. She was caught out. She'd been exposed. My dad used to be a civil engineer and he worked with a guy, this is sort of another sort of water story, this one, and he worked with a, worked with, worked with a guy who used to be a bomber trainer in the Second World War. Now for those people who have been to Yammer and Iluka, you would also know of a place called Evans Head. They still have a working bombing range at Evans Head. In the Second World War, this guy called Mr. Madden used to train these young pilots and these young bombardiers um, how to you know, drop the bombs when they had to drop the bombs. Now, friends, I don't know whether you want to put your hands up right now, but are any of you part of the green movements here this morning? Okay, well, if there's not, that's good because <laughs> I'm about to say something that the green movement wouldn't be very happy with. As they were training these young bombardiers, and this is true, this is true. If you go to the North Coast, this is part of our folklore up there. You, um, in the Second World War, training these young bombardiers, what is roughly the size of a small ship or a small submarine that a couple of times a year travels up and down the coast of New South Wales? What do you think they practice dropping bombs on, off having said, in the Second World War? They dropped them on whales. They blew up whales. They're the right size. They were travelling roughly at the right speed, and they did that. How's that news, Andrea? The same as this woman's, woman's news here this morning. That's a true story. <laughs> Probably something we're not proud of, but it's still a true story. We see here that Jesus says to exposes her sin, that she was living in a sinful relationship. Verse 19, you see how quickly the, the woman changes the subject of, of the conversation. She moves quickly away from getting the emphasis off, off herself. She quickly starts, you know, start talking about worship, where you should worship. And of course Jesus has all the answers to this. And then in verse 25, it sort of comes back around, the circle comes back around. The woman said, and this reflects her upbringing in Jewish or Jewish knowledge, she says in verse 25, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Again, he's dropped another bomb. This is the only time up until his trial and arrest, friends, that he actually makes this claim. And who does he make it to? To the most wretched, despised woman on the planet, from the Jewish people's eyes, and from the Samaritan people's eyes. You know, when Jesus made this claim, of course, a number of things happened with this woman. And it's at this point here when he makes this claim, well, she's probably thinking, well, he knows everything about me. But who is this Jesus? And it's a, and it's a point that, that I asked myself 24 years ago when I was 30 years old. So there you go, you're a mathematician, you can work at how old I am. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, I won't go into how I actually became a Christian, but if you want to ask me later, it was because of an act of cowardice. There you go, for why I'm standing here today. It's a long story, it's a very funny story. But I looked into this Jesus when someone bothered to tell me about him. I was brought up in an atheist family. I lived out west. And I, there was no such thing as skilled scripture when I was in primary school and high school. And that's why we have this opportunity with SRE and RE today to support these ministries. They're so important for the foundation of introducing Jesus into our children's lives. So I was brought up um, being, being taught evolution. And I had no reason to doubt that. No reason at all. Then someone started telling me about this Jesus. I wanted nothing to do with it. Honestly, I believe the Bible started with what the words once upon a time. I honestly thought it was a fairy tale. So this, bloke, this mate of mine, he started telling me about this Jesus. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try and disprove you. I'm going to disprove this Jesus as being nothing but a hoax and people that weak-kneed people use as a crux to get through life. So I investigated Islam. I looked at the Prophet Muhammad. And I read extensively. I've actually read the Quran. It's a fascinating book. It really is. And you can see where the terrorists of this world get their ammunition from when you read the, the writings of the Ayatollahs. But I, I read about Muhammad, a fascinating character. But I read, uh, and these, what I'm about to say over the next couple of minutes is purely a comparison. I'm not being judgmental, just comparing. Muhammad never once performed a miracle. Muhammad never once made a prophecy about anything. Muhammad never offered to die for your sins. And Muhammad is still there today. I've disregarded Islam as being a credible religion. I looked at Siddhartha Gautama. He's the Buddha founder of Buddhism. Again, he never performed a miracle. He never made a prophecy about anything. Never offered to die for your sins. And he's still dead today. I looked at the Hindu gods, the Sikh gods, all of them. But none of them, none of them did what Jesus was supposed to have done. I even read up about Nostradamus. You know, Nostradamus. How many prophecies did that man make? Yell it out. How many do you think? No idea? Thousands. How many came true? Yell it out. I'm going to ask you, how many came true? Give me a number. Zero? Ten? None? Pastor, come on. Zero. All right, if you have a wild imagination, and let's be fair to Mr. Nostradamus, if you have a wild imagination, you can vaguely, and I mean vaguely, he made so many, he had to have some sort of success rate, you can vaguely associate two, and I mean vaguely, associate two of his predictions as coming true of part of history. Right? How many prophecies did Jesus make? We don't know. The Bible's not big enough. How many came true? Every single one. 
his, his, the, the miracles Jesus performed. He performed it in a massive, invariably in, a, in front of a massive people. Why? So that the Bible could not be exaggerated. Jesus made the claim of being the Son of God. It's only through him that you get to heaven. Jesus made the claim that he'll return to take the faithful back to heaven. I have no doubt, that the, no reason to doubt that. None at all. Jesus made those claims after what he's done. I have no reason to doubt that. Now it's only Jesus who performed historical miracles. It's only Jesus who made prophecies and every one of them came true. And it's only Jesus that died to die for all, of, offered to die for all of your sins. None of the other so-called religious founders offered to do that. But Jesus had one up on them. And that was, he predicted and pulled off the most outstanding event in human history. And that was his death and resurrection. That's a point that we can't deny. That's a point of history that we cannot deny. And so Jesus did these things to prove that God is true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's only through him that we get to see the presence of God. The presence of God in heaven I cannot comprehend. I cannot comprehend the magnificence of heaven. It is beyond my brain's capacity to understand how magnificent that will be. But the Bible tells me that today, right now, there's a room prepared in heaven with your name on it, with your name on it, and it's there for your taking. To have to stand in the presence of God and be rewarded for the faithfulness while you walk this planet, I cannot comprehend. We have a very short time to make a decision about a very long time. Please remember that. Hell I cannot comprehend. There is a hell, whether it's gnashing your teeth or as Homer Simpson says, a nice warm place and somewhere to have a barbecue. That's not true. That's not how it is. Again, I cannot comprehend how horrible that will be. In 1974, my brother put me in the boot of his car and smuggled me into the drive-in theatre at Grafton. We watched The Exorcist for the first time. Do you know, ever since then, I cannot watch horror movies. I can't watch them. There was one on where I'm staying. There was one on where I was, I had to go to bed. I couldn't watch it because of that. That is a tiny glimpse of the horror of hell. We don't normally think about hell as being a place of horror. We think of it as a place of separation where God is not. A good friend of mine says, said to me only a few years ago, he said, ah, oh, well, I don't believe this Jesus thing. I'll be going to hell. He says, but it doesn't matter. All my mates will be there. That is so wrong. There is no such thing as friendships or love in hell. No such thing. I cannot comprehend it, and I don't want it, and I want my kids to have it. And it's up to me, my family, to make sure that doesn't happen. So who is this Jesus? He was who he said he was, and he proved who he said he was. He proved that God loves you. He proves who he said he was by his resurrection. The woman, that, like I said, they changed the subject. Jesus makes this claim of being the Messiah, the one to come. You've got to understand that she's just had the Holy Spirit enter her, and we, show, and we see shortly uh, why. Verse 27, the disciples return and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. Of course, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Verse 28 is the big one, as far as I'm concerned. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made the way towards him. Again, the Bible has put in a few words here that I, I, I'd honestly read hundreds of times and just read over it. 
Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar. Why would this woman lug this thing up the hill in stinking hot? It's fly, it's dusty. Why would she fill it up with water? And you've got to understand that she's filled, all the other women have been there, they've thrown their buckets down the well, this water's been stirred up, stirred up, the sediment's been stirred up. That's not really clean water. Now this isn't my thinking, I've asked a theologian mate about this years ago and he explained it to me this way. So the water stirred up, she's tipped this somewhat, you know, not pure water into the bucket, but why did she leave it there? Why would the Bible say, then leaving her water jar she went back to town? It's a very good question. And it's the centre point of this whole event in history. I actually hate it when people say a story from the Bible. I actually hate that. These are events in history. This really did happen. I think, why did she leave her water jar back at the well? Was she excited about meeting the Son of God? I think we probably all would be. Was she absent-minded? She probably had a lot on her mind. It could have been. I think it was a symbolic gesture on her part that that dirty water, that cloudy water in the pot represented her life and her sins and she left it at the feet of Jesus. That make your hair stand up on your back of your neck. And it's something that we can apply into all our life. Like I said before, if there's something here in part of your life that you've been contemplating on, you can leave it at the feet of Jesus. The most despised, the most wretched, the most despicable woman did it. And she was safe that day. She then goes into town. And this is where we assume that she's got the Holy Spirit. Number one, she goes back to the town. She doesn't, she's, she's got this news. She's got this news about Jesus could be the Messiah that they've waited for for so long. Number one, the people actually listen to her. Normally she would have been shunned by the whole, the whole village. But the people listen to her. The first thing she goes back, she goes back and actually tells a lie. It says, it says come see a man, verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, Jesus didn't tell that. It's not written down here. Jesus picked out of her biggest sin, he stuck his thumb in it and he squeezed. He squeezed. And that was her previous life. He didn't name every single sin she ever did. He just picked out the biggest one and he squeezed it. But of course, uh, it says later in the verses that many people were converted that day. Many people came into a relationship with Jesus that day. And who did Jesus use? He used her. He used her. So what do we get from these verses? I guess we get a number of things. What are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this knowledge about Jesus? He is the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He is our only access to heaven, a place where God wants us. Do we leave this building and keep our mouth shut, just as Joel prayed earlier, or do we go out and tell people about it? God will bless your words and bless those words abundantly. Whatever you fumble over and talking to someone, God will use it. You know, people say to me, oh, I could never go out and see seas and do what you do. I could never be a missionary. You know, we pray about that. But so what's God do? He sends them here. So he's full of them now. We've got our own mission field. There's a church down in Victoria. It's Lang, Lang Warren Reformed Church. And when you've got that exit sign there, there's a big sign. It's about two metres by one metre over the exit to Langwaran Church and it, and it says, that sign says you are now entering God's mission field and that's what you'll do in about half an hour's time 
you'll walk out into God's mission field, taking this information with you, and God wants you to share that. And he'll give you opportunities to do it. You've just got to be brave enough to do it. The second thing I get, of course, from this whole thing is, there is nothing in your life that is too big for God. Nothing. Nothing. God's not interested in your past. He's interested in your heart and what you think of his son Jesus Christ. That's all God's interested in. So if there's something that you haven't quite handed over to God, if there's something that's keeping you separate or distant from God, tonight, get down and pray about that tonight. And God will release you from that, whatever it is. And he will bless you because of it. Let's pray. We thank you for the words in the Bible, Lord. We thank you for preserving this document. We thank you for preserving your church. And Lord, we thank you for preserving your people. Lord, we, uh, we think about how we can apply each of us in our own way, apply this to our life uh, of what we've heard today. May we take this out and may we use it. May we be bold. May you be with us. May we feel your presence as we talk to people about what we've heard and what we believe. But most importantly, Lord, are miserable people like us. We thank you for choosing us. We thank you for um, putting us in this place, in this church. And Lord, we ask that you use us. Thank you for um, having access to you. And thank you for hearing all our prayers. But most importantly, Lord, we pray for many things. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.